Good morning, Gateway. If you're visiting with us, thanks so much for being here. We are really honored to have you. We're going to read a really powerful and potent and important and necessary passage of Scripture today. It's maybe more necessary for us than it's been for any group of people in history. How about that for a setup? Let's go old school out of reverence for God's Word. We're going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So uh, I want you to focus especially on the first paragraph. I'm going to spend most of the time this morning, or all of our time this morning, on the first paragraph. We'll cover the second paragraph next week because it's so packed and so potent. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Father, we pray this morning that you would invade our hearts and our minds with your peace today, right now, this morning. And you'd give us the privilege of passing it because it is passable. I pray, Lord, for those of us here, particularly those of us here today whose hearts and minds are under assault because of relationship difficulties or because of finances, strain at work or health. God, we pray even in the midst of difficult even in the worst circumstances, that you would today for us be the God of peace. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray, and all God's people said, they did indeed, you may be seated. All right, I don't believe that there is a more necessary topic for us in the entire Bible or anywhere else than the one Paul introduces today. So I'm going to deal with the first paragraph, and as a part of this, I'm going to tell some of my own story. If you'll allow me and bear with me, give me that liberty. Some of you have heard some of this before, those of you who've been with Gateway for a while, but you get to hear it again. If you were following this morning, you might have noticed that this section sounds at first glance like a somewhat random collection of instructions, kind of like stuff you might throw at your teenage children right before you go out for the evening. Don't have any friends over. Don't start a fire in the living room. Call us if anyone is bleeding. Paul's instructions are short. They're clipped phrases. They're mostly exhortations, and there are very few connecting words in this section. But I think the passage is more intentional and more integrated than that. And the linchpin, the thing that holds this passage together, is something that you and I desperately need to think about. The linchpin is the idea of God's peace, which transcends understanding. God's intention here is to assure us that in the worst of circumstances, we can experience his peace. 
in the worst of circumstances, we can experience his peace. And speaking of the worst of circumstances, that's what the, the original readers, the Christians in the ancient city of Philippi were facing. They were being persecuted for their faith. So it's not surprising. The word Paul uses here for anxious is often used in the context of per persecution. Both Matthew and Luke, who were biographers of Jesus, they used this word in their record of a speech Jesus gave to the disciples about not being concerned over what they would say if they were brought before the local authorities for questioning. Jesus says to them, don't be anxious, same word, God will give you the words. Jesus encouraged them. And in our passage, the word used for gentle, let your gentleness be evident to all, the word used for gentle here is, is even more interesting. It was used particularly in settings where the normal response would be retaliation, but kindness was what God advocated. So for example, this word figures prominently in a story from the apocryphal book of wisdom, and that's one of those Jewish books that was written between the Old Testament and New Testament. In this story, a group of obviously evil people, believing that life is short and that nothing lies beyond the grave, they decide to, quote, from the book of wisdom, crown themselves with rosebuds before they wither, and, quote, everywhere leave signs of enjoyment, end quote. In other words, let's eat, drink, and be merry while we can. But there's a righteous character in this story who, who doesn't go along and decides to disapprove of their actions. So they decide to persecute him. That's again a quote from the Book of Wisdom. Quote, let us test him with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is. End quote. Same word. So the context is the worst of circumstances, and Paul understands that. Listen, Paul's saying, you are in a situation that might inspire you to become bitter and angry and to think of retaliation. Don't do it. Instead, be gentle. You're also in a situation that's prime for causing you to worry and causing alarm. Don't be. Pray instead. Even in the worst of circumstances, you can experience God's peace. So, why do I say that this is so powerful and so necessary for us in our context? All right. In case you've been hibernating for the last 25 years, let me be the first to tell you that America has become an extremely anxious nation. Some estimates have put the societal cost of anxiety at over $50 billion, including $2 billion spent on anxiety medications alone. Over 18% of us have some kind of anxiety disorder. And let me be clear, this doesn't mean that 18% of us experience bouts of anxiety. This means that over 18% of us have a diagnosable disorder of anxiety. The most glaring part of this problem is the toll that it's taking on our young people. 38% of girls between the ages of 13 and 17 report difficulty with anxiety. 26% of boys between the ages of 13 and 17 the anxiety memoir has become its own literary genre, occupying whole shelves in bookstores. Because so many authors and celebrities are writing tell-all books about their struggle with anxiety. There's a new mental health magazine, by the way, which is only recently hitting the internet and magazine racks called Anxi. And it's dedicated completely to our struggle with anxiety. Some of you are growing anxious just hearing about all this. <laughs> Last year, Dr. Kevin Chapman wrote an article in the magazine Psychology Today about anxiety. And pretty near the top, he starts it with this quote. I, I want you to hear this. 
Although the process of anxiety is undoubtedly universal and occurs in all cultures, diagnosable anxiety disorders appear to affect Western societies, in particular us Americans, more than any other cultures. Thank you, Captain Obvious. In fact, I would say Dr. Chapman has given us a decided understatement. I think it's fair to say that if we could imagine anxiety being its own culture, then we live in the capital. And against this backdrop, Paul speaks into our lives this morning with an urgency and a power and a clarity and a practicality that we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore, especially we suburban Americans. The peace of God, which transcends understanding, is available to us. And in this passage, we get a bird's eye view of how we should live, even in the worst of circumstances, if we want to experience that peace. In persecution, in life-altering financial trial, in marital distress, in declining health, even in the worst circumstances, here's the recipe. Okay, number one, rejoice in the Lord, always. Now don't miss the fact that Paul is essentially ordering us to be happy. But the critical piece is his reminder that we find that happiness in Jesus, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. He doesn't say this here, but the New Testament elsewhere makes it clear that there is nowhere else we can find our happiness reliably and sustainably. A deep connection with God through Jesus Christ is the only source of reliable, sustainable happiness. I'm going to say that again, because I know some of us struggle even believing this. Most of us struggle practicing this. A deep connection with God through Jesus Christ, I contend, and so do the authors of the New Testament and the millions of saints who've gone before us, is the only reliable source of reliable and sustainable happiness. I'm convinced our disregard of this truth is at the root of many of our problems, including some of the anxiety that we experience. We have searched through a whole catalog of options to find our happiness, and we continue to do so. I had lunch a couple weeks ago with someone. I asked their permission to share this. We sat down and we're Panera, order our meal, sit down. How you doing? I'm a mess. Okay, what's up? Uh, he went on to share with me how he has changed his marital status. He's trying a new job. He's on new medication. He's joined a gym, among other things. At the end of this catalog, I'm a mess. I suggested to him, okay, you're trying a new job. You've changed your marital status. You're on new medication. You've joined a gym. Still something is missing. I would suggest that you've left off the one thing that can actually provide the solution. And he said, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> You know what I mean this morning. Our happiness can only be found reliably and sustainably in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Next, Paul adds this. Number two, let your gentleness be evident to all. Retaliatory behavior is not wise. It's not reflective of your best or of God's work in you. It doesn't get you where you want to go, and it's counterproductive to your personal peace. So if my way of dealing with conflict is to rehearse my anger or to focus on winning my argument, then I am not going to experience the peace of God. Evidently, the way I handle myself on Facebook 
and in political discussions, in fact, any discussions where people disagree with me or criticize me, evidently the way I handle myself there impacts my peace. And when I'm mistreated or overlooked or isolated, evidently I'm to respond with gentleness. Evidently, this is the pathway to peace. He adds this, because the Lord is near. And I think this is both a comforting promise and a kind of imposing reminder of the bigness of God. Someone sent me this 100% true story this week I want you to hear. An atheist was taking a walk through the woods, admiring all that had come into being through the accident of evolution. What majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what beautiful animals, he said to himself. As he walked alongside the river, he heard a rustling in the bushes behind him. He turned to look, just in time to see a seven-foot grizzly charging toward him. He ran as fast as he could up the path. He looked over his shoulder, saw the bear was gaining on him. He tried to run even faster, so scared that tears were coming to his eyes. He looked over his shoulder, the bear was even closer. His heart was pumping frantically as he tried to run even faster, but he tripped, fell on the ground, rolled over, picked himself up, and saw the bear right on top of him, raising his paw to kill him. At that instant, he cried out, Oh, my God! Just then, time froze. The bear froze. The forest was silent. Even the river stopped moving. A, a bright light shone upon the man, and a voice came out of the sky saying, You deny my existence all these years. Teach others I don't exist. Even credit my creation to cosmic accident. And now, you expect me to help you out of this predicament. Am I to count you as a believer? The atheist looked into the light and said, It would be rather hypocritical to ask to be a Christian after all these years, but could you make the bear a Christian? Very well, said the voice. As the light went on, the river ran, the sounds of the forest continued, the bear put his paw down. The man breathed a sigh of relief, then the bear brought both his palms together, bowed his head and said, Lord, I thank you for this food which I'm about to receive. (laughs) That has very little to do with the message this morning. (laughs) I just loved it when I read it. Jesus is spiritually supernaturally, in reality, near. Just as Nate said this morning, near. He's here this morning. Now, he's not imposing and threatening like a bear, but he is near us in a way that is controlling of the situation. God is in control. We are not. And when we try to run or work or or struggle or press our way out of our mess, We cannot outrun it. This is not the path of peace. But more importantly, Jesus is also near to us to protect us and to express himself through us if we make space for him. Even in the worst circumstances, he will express himself through us if we make space for him. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Okay, the third exhortation for us is the payoff, right? Don't be anxious about anything. Now let's be honest. On first reading, this seems decidedly unhelpful. Imagine if your counselor said this. Dr. Doolittle, I'm struggling with anxiety. Well, don't be anxious. Dr. Doolittle, do you expect to be paid for this therapy? Because it's not very helpful. I suspect you might not visit Dr. Doolittle again. But Paul's advice here is different than Dr. Doolittle's. 
It doesn't read like a command. It reads like an encouragement. And, and you get the feeling that Paul believes we can actually do this. We can actually not worry. So here's the $64,000 question. How? Well, there are two critically important things we should keep in mind about this encouragement. Number one, if we're going to put this into practice, number one, Paul doesn't see this, this not worry business. He doesn't see this as a switch we can flick on and off at a moment's notice. This takes time and it takes spiritual work on our part. There are many exhortations in the New Testament that are obviously not one-off commands. For example, at one point Jesus told his followers, take up your cross and follow me. This is a lifelong pattern. It's not a one-off command. So when Paul says, do not worry, he means this as a life pattern that we have to massage into our lives. In my early 20s, I began to struggle with regular, and it eventually became consistent, and then it became constant anxiety. Once in a while, I would experience what I now know, didn't at the time, but what I now know is a panic attack, or very nearly so. There were periods of time during this period of my life when it was difficult, for instance, for me to go to see a movie. I'd have to sit on the back row. I'd keep my arms crossed because I just wasn't sure when the next moment was going to hit me. I would experience what I started calling my funk regularly. I would get worried, and then I'd get worried about being worried. And then I would get worried about being worried about being worried, and it was a downward spiral that sucked me into panic mode. Over time, I tried everything. That's important. I read stuff about it. I went to a counselor for a while. I went to a healing service. I got friends to pray over me for healing. I tried memorizing Bible passages, including this one. I did everything that I could think of, and mostly I was desperate before God constantly crying out to God, yelling at him, help me, help me feel normal. Help me just feel okay. Over the course of time, I stumbled into, I guess the right language is I was led into three life-altering truths that changed everything for me and ultimately uh, freed me. I don't think that's everyone's story. I think some people continue with that struggle over a long period of time. But for me, God brought that struggle to an end. He literally healed me. What I want to do is share some of my lessons with you. So lesson number one for me, there is no magic pill. I kept looking for the thing, the realization, or the prayer, or the word from the counselor, or the pill, or the whatever that would make it all go away, and I realized there was no magic pill. For me, that was helpful. Part of the churning in me went away almost instantly. Well, when I say instantly, you know, over a period of months. Part of the churning went away from me and realizing there's going to be churning. Relax. Relax in your worry. There is no magic pill. It is a process. It takes time. And Paul outlines the most important part of that process. Underscore that. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Paul underscores the most important part of that process. 
If you struggle with stress or anxiety or worry this morning or someone in your family does or someone that you know really, really well does, and I have covered everyone in here almost, if you do or if they do, the most important part of that struggle is this. There is certainly for some of us a biological component. We're wired to be more wired. We're wired to charge. We're wired to be controlling some of us. For others of us, there may be a a chemical element. Although, you know, the latest research will tell you that the drugs that we're using to calm ourselves, the anti-anxiety medication, I heard a guy just this week, a psychologist just this week, describe it as it's kind of like these drugs just bombard the brain generally. They're not very specific. They're not localized in a sense. So he said it's almost like your engine being low on oil, you raise the hood, open a can of oil, and just pour it all over the engine. Some of it's bound to go in the right place, but it soaks the whole engine. So I'm a believer in medication, and I know that some of you are using it and need it, but also know that it's limited in its effectiveness. The most important part of the struggle, I'm convinced, is this. It's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. For some of us, there's a physical element. You just do better when you sweat every day. You do better when you get, we all do. You do better when you eat right and you you sleep well. Yes, but the most important part of our struggle is this part. Number one, there's no magic pill. And the most important part of our journey, our struggle with anxiety, is our spiritual life. I have to tell you, for me, for instance, here's a specific of what I mean. God will not only give you supernaturally, occasionally give you release, experiences of his peace, but he'll also give you insight. He will use this to drive you in and show you more of yourself. During this period of time, one of the discoveries that came to me, this is just an example of the work of the spiritual life. One of the insights that came to me is my father died of a heart attack, massive heart attack when he was 50 years old, really suddenly. He had 12 brothers and sisters. 11 of them died of heart attacks. The oldest was 55. Both of his parents died of, I know, you groan. Don't, that doesn't make me feel better, by the way. Both of his parents died of heart disease. Both of my grandparents on the other side of my family died of heart disease. Not good. Honestly, without even realizing it, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was scared to death of dying. Every time I would get one of those electrical flickers in your heart where it, you know, will skip a beat, I'm dying, I'm having a heart attack, I'm dying right now. Every time there was a gas pain in my upper stomach or chest, oh, am I, do I need to go to the emergency room? Somebody tell me. I was scared to death of death, and I didn't know it. And over time, as I explored and struggled and cried out to God, I realized, wait a minute, I'm afraid of dying, and I don't need to be. And a little piece, a little piece of the anxiety that had a hold in my heart and life broke free. Just a little chain broke free from that realization. The most important part of the work that you're going to do with stress and with anxiety, and with worry, and with panic in your life. The most important part of the work, and do all of the work, but the most important part of the work that you're going to do is the spiritual work you're going to do. Because the only source 
of reliable, sustainable happiness in our life is a deep connection with God. All right, enough. Second thing I want you to notice about this do not worry business is he doesn't just give the instruction and then drop the mic. He offers us a remedy. He tells us where and how to apply this. He gives us what amounts to the antidote for worry. And it's straightforward and it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. I don't know how to dress this up. Present your request to God. Don't worry about them. Present them to God. A couple of conditions. First of all, by prayer and petition. It's almost like we can rephrase Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry, just pray. By the way, when you're praying, if you're caught in a worry cycle, my wife Diane was talking about this the other night with our small group. She has a practice where she keeps a little piece of paper beside her devotional materials. And when something threatens to distract her or when a worry enters her mind, she puts it on the worry list and then it's gone. She can deal with it later. Now back to the business at hand. So present your request to God and keep a worry list. He gives another condition, doesn't he? Present your requests to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Apparently, much of the battle with anxiety has to do with attitude. Remember that one. Much of the battle with anxiety evidently has to do with attitude. The Apostle Paul, it seems, or God's Spirit working through the Apostle Paul, is a profoundly relevant psychologist. Dr. Kelly McGonigal is a psychology professor at Stanford University. She gave a TED Talk recently on stress. I want you to listen to what she said. I'm a health psychologist, and my mission is to make people happier and healthier. But I fear that something I've been teaching for the last 10 years has done more harm than good, and it has to do with stress. This will blow your mind. For years, I've been telling people that stress makes you sick. You've read these studies. It increases the risks of everything from cardiovascular disease to the common cold. Basically, I've turned stress into the enemy, but I've changed my mind. And today, I want to change yours. Then she cites a large-scale study that's been done recently, since 2000, I think, of 30,000 American adults over an eight-year period of time specifically aimed at stress. Respondents were asked a battery of questions about stress, about what they're experiencing right now, about anxiety. And then the researchers followed public death records to see how many of the respondents died. And so they related that to life expectancy, to their struggle with stress. Then Dr. McGonigal says this, listen, okay, let's start with the bad news. People who experienced a lot of stress in the previous year had a 43% greater chance of dying than those who did not. That's pretty shocking. Some of you are ready to check yourselves into the emergency room after this is finished today, but then she blows our minds with this little nugget. However, when the researchers dug deeper, they discovered that this was only true for those who believed that stress was bad for you. She continues, people who experienced a lot of stress but did not believe it was harmful were no more likely to die than those who were not experiencing stress. She paused over that reality for a moment, because that's kind of mind-blowing. And she pressed in to make sure we really got the point. She said this, 
The researchers estimated that over the eight years that they were conducting the test, 182,000 people in America died not from stress or the complications of stress, but from the belief that stress is bad for you. According to Dr. McGonigal, this would make believing that stress is bad for you the 15th largest cause of death in the United States. Okay, of course, much more that needs to be explored here, and you can go look at that talk. It's extremely interesting on TED.com. One thing is absolutely clear. Attitude is key, isn't it? So, take your concerns, take your worries, take your panic, take your circumstances, and present them to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. I need to tell you the second lesson I learned. Diane and I had a great doctor when we lived in Massachusetts. He was on the North Shore. Diane and I lived for a number of years in Boston before we moved here to Northern Virginia. And this doctor was on the North Shore up near, he's 30, 40, 40, probably 40 minutes outside of Boston. He was up near where I had gone to seminary, which is when we first started going to him. And then when we moved down to the city, we loved this doctor so much we continued to go. And he was one of these kind of doctors who, at the height of his career, he would spend nine months in practice in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, in a cushy suburb. And then he would spend three months on the mission field, uh, just doing medical missions. So this awesome, wonderful doctor, godly man. So even after we moved into the city, we continued to see this doctor. I was in my early 30s at the time, and anxiety was still a present reality in my life. I had already begun to chip away at it. God had shown me some things, but it was a present reality. And I had a doctor's visit. How often have you heard this? Sorry, Dr. Leo, but I had a doctor visit that was utterly healing for me. It set me free. I'm not kidding. I had a doctor visit, left the office 10,000 pounds lighter. So I go into the doctor's office. He told me a couple of things. I'll give you one now and another in a minute. I go into the doctor's office. Nurse comes in, takes my blood pressures through the roof. She says, okay, let me go get the doctor. So I'm in there for a while. I'm certain that they're going to put me in the hospital for a, a stroke. And he comes in and he has me lie down on the table puts the blood pressure cuff on me, says, okay, Ed, tell me about the boys. At the time, our boys were little, so, oh, you know, Dawson just stuck a stick up his nose and George, whatever. And, all right, tell me about Diane. So I start talking about Diane. She does the blood pressure cuff, takes my blood pressure, perfectly normal. I'm on blood pressure medication, which helps. But even on it, my blood pressure elevated. Takes the blood pressure cuff off and he says, listen, Ed, I think you experience what we call white coat syndrome. Some of you know what this is. But he says some people are so freakishly anxious that they're able to elevate their blood pressure just because they're in a doctor's office. I think you might be one of those kind of people. So let's talk. Now this was, you know, I'm old. So this was in the 1840s. Medicine was different then than it is now. <laughs> Doctors would actually spend a few minutes with you. And so we're talking. And he's a Christian brother. So he's asking me about my struggle. I'm telling him about some of the things that I've learned. You know, scared to death of death. I get it. You know, you've got a, got a difficult family history. Tell me more. We talked for a while. And he said something utterly amazing. You know, I can't help but notice something through your story, Ed. I said, okay, Doc. 
And he said, you know, you experienced some, sounds like pretty intense anxiety in your 20s, and you, you started crying out to God. Yep. But you got really desperate. Yep. Sometimes you were ticked off. Yep. But you're ticked off at God. Yep. And you're ticked off with God. Yep. It sounds like your anxiety drove you to God. Yep. It sounds to me like part of who you are and the depth of your connection to God is because you spent so much time struggling with anxiety. Yep. It sounds to me like anxiety has been your friend. Wait, what? It sounds to me like anxiety has been your friend. Chains fall off. Attitude is key. I was about 4,000 pounds lighter three seconds later. That funk, that cycle of worrying and worrying about my worry and worrying about my worry and worrying and worrying about that I'm worrying that I'm worried about my worrying. Over. I start to worry and I tell myself, I know you. This is my friend. And it's my friend because I'm going to God. Attitude is key. The most important part of the work that you'll do in this area of your life is the spiritual work you'll do. All right. What's the result of living this kind of practice, of doing this stuff, of following the pathway of peace? Well, the peace of God that is incomprehensible. That's the result. Listen, there's a part of us, an unhealthy part, that is convinced that peace is dependent on circumstances. So we're constantly looking to change our circumstances in order to build peace into our lives. We join the gym, we change our marital status, we remodel our home, whatever. But it turns out that there is a peace that is available to us that is independent of circumstance. It transcends comprehension. It cannot be explained, but there it is. And God's peace is not only independent of circumstances, it's powerful and it's stubborn. It actually guards our hearts and our minds. And this word, some of you know, this word guard was usually used in military context. And how appropriate is that? Lord knows our heart and mind are often under assault, but God's peace can withstand those assaults. I mean, give me some of that. Even if you struggle to believe all this religious stuff today, you, you have to be intrigued enough to try this. If this is true, it's real medicine. Okay, so in my story, you've heard blinding truth number one, there's no magic pill. I got to do work, and the most important part of it is spiritual. Blinding truth number two, anxiety is my friend. Blinding truth number three, the doctor and I continue to talk. He gets serious with me and gives me some warnings about how I'm going to have to manage myself for the rest of my life because this may, in fact, be a struggle for you. We talk and we talk, and then he says the thing that delivers the other 6,000 pounds off of me. He says, listen, Ed, there's a really good chance that you're going to die of heart disease one day. Thank you very much, Doc. But let me tell you something. You're more information than you need, but I want to set you up for the blinding truth. He says, your dad was overweight. You're not. 
You're in really good shape. And your dad lived in a small town in South Carolina. He was having a major heart incident, and your mother had to put him, I told him all of this, your mother had to put him in a car, which was true, herself, and drive him 13 miles to the nearest hospital. And the nearest hospital, by the way, was not Fairfax Inova. They were completely unequipped to deal with what was going on with him, and he died. Listen, medical science today is so much better, and by the time you're old, which is now, by the time you're old, it will even be better still. And you're going to live in a different kind of area. Right now, you're right down the street from Mass General. Here's what I predict. Of course, I don't know this, but here's what I predict. I predict that you're going to be in your late 70s or early 80s. Your children will come home with their wives and grandchildren. Please, Dylas, keep praying. Your children... <laughs> your your children will come home with their wives and their grandchildren, and you will have spent a wonderful week with them, and you will have overexerted yourself. But it will have been a joyous family occasion. You'll sit down in your favorite chair, and you'll fall over dead. Wait, 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 wait. And then he said exactly the words I needed to hear. Man, I can think of a lot worse ways to go. Wow, freedom, freedom, seriously. And then he topped it off. The weight had been lifted, but it had not left the room. He said, Ed, God is sovereign. And you're not going to die or not die because of your biology. You're going to die or not die because God says so. He's like that big bear. He's in control of the situation. God is sovereign. Turns out that the most important part of the battle for you and I it's not out there. It's not circumstantial. The most important part of the battle is this. So when we're in the middle of raging difficulty, the most important part of the battle is not figuring out how to manage the difficulty. The most important part of the battle is figuring out how to rejoice in the Lord and how to be gentle and how to pray with thanksgiving. So we don't throw all of our resources and all of our energy and all of our thinking and all of our time at how do I solve that problem. We throw our resources at how in the world in this circumstance do I rejoice. And we throw our resources at it until we get there. And how do I, in the midst of this, how do I be gentle? And how do I really pray? I know it's hard. But that's where the battle is. The battle is not figuring out the bear. We don't have any control over the bear. When I'm in a bad circumstance, this is it. I must train myself to rejoice in the Lord. I must let my gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, and I must not worry. I must instead present my request to God by praying and petitioning him. I must present these requests with thanksgiving because the attitude is key. I've loaded on mygateway.life. Mygateway.life has a card on it this week that has five days of short meditation about anxiety. One of the scriptures we're meditating on is this one. And then there are four others. I want to recommend if you use this this week, and, and if you need it, please do it. You need 15 minutes, maybe 20, and you need a quiet spot, and you need access to your computer or your phone so that you can listen 
there are two days where I recommend the song for you, so you're going to need to listen to the song. So get your computer, your phone, and, and your headphones. And try this this week if you need it. So five days, it's on mygateway.life. So I train myself, I discipline myself to rejoice, to be gentle, to pray with thanksgiving and God's peace, which is incomprehensible, will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Father, some of us this morning are frankly in a place where peace is unavailable, or it feels unavailable. Right now, from where we are, it feels unavailable. And we're convinced we need to remove the barrier or, or we need to change the, what's going on in our marriage or work or the health crisis that won't go away or the finances. And Lord, this morning, we recognize that that's not only ineffective, it's unhelpful. It's not the problem. Honestly, Lord, we confess that we have tried a catalog of things, and we still end up in places that are not great, not what you designed for us, and sometimes just really bad. So this morning, hear our confession. We saddle up to this. For some of us, Lord, we've known this for a long time, but it, I don't know, Lord, I, I think of the guy who said it's not that our religion has been tried and it's found wanting. The problem is it's untried. We know this. We just don't do it. Others of us, Lord, are circling around you or maybe near you. We have a heart that's interested, but we've never dialed into a real connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And I pray in Jesus' name that today we've been intrigued, that our heart has been opened a little, that we feel your spirit stirring in us. I pray, God, that we feel some solid ground under our feet and we feel the truth of this. And we want to step into something new. And I pray, Lord, I pray that we would hear us because we need peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's stand together. So we're going to sing a verse and a chorus of Unchanging God. And you're going to sing it like you mean it. We're going to sing it this morning like we rehearsed this as a choir. And you're going to listen to the words of this because, man, it's incredible. Faithful in the waiting, you are always faithful. In the valley, you are faithful. In the midst of hurt and pain. What is he? Let's try it. Rebecca? again. Faithful in the waiting. Come on, choir. sovereign. He's like a big giant bear, except you're not his lunch. He wants to bless you. 
We're going to sing that verse again. Faithful. I don't know if we got it. And remember, this is spiritual work. We all understand that we don't get this easily. We have to do work on this. So let's do some work, choir. Faithful in the waiting. Let's go. Rebecca, your promises. Your promises remain forever and ever. You won't fade away. You never, you never change your unchanging God. You will never change your unchanging God. Unchanging God, we are so grateful for your faithfulness to us and for the opportunity to be faithful in response to you. And so we pray that you take our giving this morning, our offering, and you would use it and bless it and accomplish your purposes with it. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Hope you have a great week. Go in peace.